Well, it's good to be here. Well, it's packed house. It's amazing to stand in a building that you uh, you sat in somebody's front room and heard them tell you about before it was, you know, anything other than a vision, a dream in a leadership team's eyes. So, huge congratulations to you for uh, for for this building. I guess there's a next one now on the cards. <laughs> It's a great youth church you got here. Where's the real church going to be built, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Pete's crazy enough to believe that as well, which is what I kind of like about him, you know? So, uh, well, it's, it's, it really is. It's, uh, we're on a journey. If my young son was here, he'd now be smiling and saying, it's all part of the journey, Dad. Uh, it is. And uh, we, we actually lived not very far from here for four years of our lives. And I worked at Maidstone Prison for from 84 to 88, I think it was, something along those lines. So a little bit familiar with this corner of, of England. I'll tell you just a couple of headlines of my journey and then, and then preach. And Pete asked me to preach something, which actually I think I probably would have preached even if he hadn't asked me. It's one of those kind of like, yep, that's, that's exactly what I would want to preach here. Uh, so my headlines of my life journey, I've been a Christian since 73 yeah, I'm getting old. It just happens to all of us, you know. You can laugh, but it will happen to you too. <laughs> In fact, the option's nowhere near as fun. So I, I, well, I guess heaven's fun, but I really want to see my grandkids grow up and have their kids. So, uh, and uh, saved in '73. I'll tell you a little bit about my call in '75, but then that caused me to work in uh, healthcare and prisons for 25 years of my working life. And then Sue and I find ourselves connected to Bethel in 1999. Before anyone knew there was a Bethel, there was no website, no books. Bill Johnson wasn't really Bill Johnson. And, uh, <laughs> and we went there in 2001. Little did we know that we would spend 15 years of our lives living there, that I would end up on the senior team and travel the world. We didn't really travel much before we went to America. It's really funny now. We come back here... And what seemed like a long journey is just like, oh, I can pop over the Holland for the day. That's not a problem. Yeah, I can do that. So, uh, so our lives have been radically changed. But we then uh, heard the Lord call us back. Uh, it began a little bit earlier with Sue than it did with me. But it was very, very clear. Never heard anything clearer. Yeah, I've never heard anything clearer in my life than us moving back here. I think some would realize it's probably not the easy option, but it is the right option. And uh, so we are, we're very happy to be here, dividing my life in my head in three parts. Well, it's probably four, actually. But uh, I'm on the senior team at Bethel, I consider that a great honor and privilege and to represent Bethel, particularly in Europe, and to gather the alumni, particularly again in Europe. So that's one piece of our lives. I'm also on a strategy team, developing a strategy for the evangelization of Europe. That's the last thing I expected to be doing up until four years ago, but that is, uh, I believe, a huge part. I call myself a British European. I encourage you to do the same. It's not a political statement. It's a statement of the continent I intend to see in revival in my lifetime. I really seriously, I do believe we need to grab hold of this moment. That uh, I love that song we sung. Restore the years of the nation's slumber. Oh, gosh, come on. That's it. That's the song every church in this country should be singing today. 
And uh, so that's another piece of my life. And then I'll be developing sort of the, the me, us part. What does that look like when we, when we travel, when we minister? Um, and we're working on that. And I guess the other piece is just uh, the fun part of life. Although it's actually all fun, but family and living near our grandkids and, and getting to live back in this, in this country again and enjoy this great country uh, again, which we've not been able to do for for 15 years so we looked at our calendar the other day and realized we were home for Wimbledon and so we'll be uh, we'll be if we can't get tickets we'll be in the line we'll be there going and just enjoying some of the the great aspects so Pete asked me he said uh, pre- would you preach on uh, on the whole secular sacred issue and uh, it's really one of my one of my life messages I say to people though that the older you get the more life messages you have um, and I, I do have a number, but I think I've narrowed my life down now to, to two things. I want to see a united bride. I really do want to see a united bride. Europe won't be in revival without a united bride. It won't happen. We have to be a united bride. And, and then wrapped up within that is a fully empowered bride. I want to see a fully empowered bride. And that's where this comes in. That's where this subject really kicks in. And... Uh, Proverbs says, it's, it, it's slightly out of context, but I'll run with it if, you, if you'll run with me. As a man thinks, so is he in this world. So, so how do you think about you? How do you think about what you do with your, with your life? I, I have this uh, rough statistic, and of course most statistics are made up on the spur of the moment, apparently. Um, but uh, it's a rough statistic. It's based on a little bit of evidence that 97 out of every 100 of you aren't paid to be here. In other words, you, you earn your living somewhere else. Three out of every 100 people roughly get paid to go to church. It's my rough estimate. But, you know, you'd have like a pastor, an associate, and a PA out of every 100. Something like that. So 97 out of every 100 people that are in a church on a Sunday morning are not paid to be there. Here's the problem. The problem is that if those 97% feel less valuable than the ones who are paid to go to church, then we have a disempowered army. And I spent 25 years of my life working in, uh, in healthcare and prison. In all honesty, I don't remember conversations with my leaders that valued what I did. Monday to Friday, or in my case, it was rarely Monday to Friday, but for my 70 hours a week that I was working in prison, I don't remember anyone actually taking me to one side and saying, this is really valuable. In fact, I did some crazy things in that season. I'd drive home, I worked in Belmarsh for a while and lived in Staines. Like, I don't have to explain that to a British audience. America, I have to explain it. That was four plus hours in my car a day and a 10-hour working day. And I walked into my house at about 7.45 at night, grabbed a sandwich and walked back out to run a youth group. And I don't remember anyone ever saying that that was not a good plan for my life. It was not a good plan for my life, my wife or my kids. But that was the kind of thing that I ended up doing. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do stuff in the church. My point, though, is that as you think, so are you in this world. Um, You you may or may not be having a a wonderful colleague of mine called Steve Backland come here in the not-too-distant future. Uh, And Steve has a ministry uh, based around um, identifying kind of lies that we believe and, and laughing at those lies. So when I when I first preached this message, I actually talked to him and said, give me a few lies 
about this secular sacred thing. And, and he and I between us came up with these. You see, if you're one of the 97%, then you might believe some lies like this. I'm a lesser or second class Christian. My work is not as important. One day, I'll be in ministry. I'm not as spiritual. Problems in my life are my fault because I'm not a good Christian. I can only encounter the glory of God in church. The best places in heaven... Somebody's getting it. There we go. The best place in heaven are reserved for the full-time Christian ministers. Now you're warming up now. We're getting there. This is good. Only what happens in church advances the kingdom. I like this crowd over here. In fact, I actually had a word for you. I watched you um, during the declaration. What's your name? Yeah, your, your name. Nicole. I felt like there was something on your life to break fear on other people. So obviously they agree. So I haven't, I, but uh, I just, I, I saw you, I saw actually the posture you took in actual fact during the declaration and uh, it just reminded, I often teach uh, and, and will get people to stand and demonstrate something and the verse that I always use is, God has not given me a spirit of fear but of love, power and a sound mind. And you had a posture during that declaration because you were standing like that. I might be the only person that noticed this about you. But I believe that that's not just a posture for a declaration. It's actually the posture of your life. And you walk into places with, an, with a confidence on you. And, and you stand and look fear in the eye just like this with your shoulders back and your head up and your hands on your hips. Yeah. I believe the Lord says this, don't stop because you are going to be taken into places and you are going to meet with people and because of your confidence, they're going to crush fear because of you. Don't stop whatever you do. See, here's the, here's the problem that a lot of us found ourselves in. We compare ourselves to other people or we compare ourselves to a perceived future. See, if I compare myself, I, I, I was called to the ministry when I was um, 17 years of age. I know that I know that I know that I was called. I heard the call of God that called me to ministry. have no clue what it meant when I was 17 years of age. I wrote to the man who had become my grandfather-in-law, Sue's grandfather. He was a director general of the European Christian Mission. He gave me some very, very good advice. He said, Paul, go and get some experience working with people. I've met some pastors who could do with that, that <laughs> advice. And so I worked as a nurse, psychiatric nurse, a general nurse, worked in the prison service and ended up being a prison governor. I, I was 25 years on that, on that journey. And I did have some times when I would compare myself with other people and wonder, when's my time coming? But here's the problem. If I compare myself with someone else, and I, I don't know about you, but I typically lose the battle in my head. If I compare myself, someone else always comes out better than me. So there's a problem because I devalue me if I compare myself with someone else. And then if I'm comparing myself with a future that's yet to happen and saying, one day I'll be in ministry, I'm actually devaluing today. 
So I'm, I'm actually devaluing my presence on earth by comparing myself with other people and waiting for a future to come because I'm missing this moment. Destiny is a funny word. It's actually not really in the Bible very much, but the church has embraced it. When I was a kid, um, destiny was a word associated with the New Age movement and really meant fate. Destiny was somehow, well, fate will work this out. Destiny only appears once in the Bible, to my knowledge. It's actually the cup of fate that the Jews drank when they were in captivity in Babylon. But we've made destiny something else. So let me give you a quick personal definition of destiny. I believe that destiny is who I am, what I'm here for, and where I'm going. All wrapped up in one thing. Now, none of you would doubt that Jesus was in his destiny in a manger. None of you would doubt he was in his destiny learning how to cut wood in a carpenter's workshop. None of you would doubt that he was in his destiny walking and choosing his disciples. None of you would doubt that he was in his destiny carrying a cross. None of you would doubt he was in his destiny dying on a cross, lying in a grave, being resurrected. But some of you are doubting that you're in your destiny right here, right now. And doing what you're doing today. And if you do, what's happening is you are devaluing today and you are devaluing your contribution to the world. And you are devaluing, as it were, your experience of the world in your life today. We have to understand that we are in our destiny right here, right now, doing what we're doing, being who we're called to be. But this problem of comparison, it actually will negate our contribution to the earth. See, there are many verses in the Bible, I could pick many of them, but we are co-laborers with God. You and I are co-laborers with God. And if you have a mindset that says that there is a secular sacred divide, that there are some things that are more sacred than others and other things that are more secular, then I want to suggest to you that you have created a problem in your thinking because it will mean that you have a higher value for what somebody like Pete does when he jumps up here with a microphone than what Pete does when he's used to, he doesn't anymore, puts a stethoscope around his neck and puts it on your chest. That somehow that there's a difference in value between those two things. And it will mean that you have the same thinking about yourself and you are believing lies about yourself. I don't read a secular sacred divide in the Bible. It's not in there. If we go way back to the garden, what we find in the garden is this. He said, subdue the earth. Be fruitful, multiply. Turn this earth, as it were, into the most fruitful place imaginable. I don't believe that he has a division. I know where secular sacred divide originates from. I'm not going to teach that today. But but what I want to do is address what may well be going on in your head. You see, if you believe, as, as you laughed at or enjoyed the most out of my list, that you can only experience glory in the church, then what that means is that you go to work tomorrow morning and you're waiting to come back here next Sunday. And it means that you will miss God tomorrow. You'll miss his glory. You'll miss his presence. Now, it might not be quite the same. There's not going to be the worship band that strums up. There's not going to be people dancing, singing prophetically and doing all that kind of stuff. But I guarantee you this. There is glory out there in every office, in every school, in every hospital, in every home, in every classroom. And I believe that our assignment actually is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. 
But you see, this comparison thing, it causes problems. One of the biggest problems is you'll put people like me on a pedestal. Please don't. Because you'll either put me on a pedestal or knock me off a pedestal. And neither of those are a good way of living. And what we end up doing is, we, we do, we create this thing in our mind that somehow our pastor, our prophet, our apostle, the itinerant preacher is somehow a better Christian than I am, has a closer walk with God, makes a greater contribution. And then what happens is, when we fall, oh, we unleash such disappointment in your hearts. Because somehow you thought that we were better than you. And we need to end this. It needs to stop. I passionately believe that it's time for a reformation. But not a repeat of an old reformation, but a new reformation. A reformation which looks like societal transformation. And it won't happen from a pulpit. It won't happen. Maybe we'll inspire. Maybe we'll motivate. Maybe we'll cheer on. Maybe we'll believe in you. But where it will happen, it will happen out there. In offices, schools, government buildings across this continent. That's where it will happen. And if we have a secular sacred divide, I'll guarantee that we will have something else with it. We'll have a natural supernatural divide. And I live my life to see the erasing of the secular sacred, the marriage of the supernatural and the bridging of the us and them. Because all have to go. See, I don't read a secular sacred divide in the Bible. I don't read a natural supernatural divide in the Bible. And I don't read an us and them in the Bible. And what I want to see is, I want to see a fully empowered bride. I remember standing in Pete's kitchen. I'd had prostate cancer and I'd had my radical prostatectomy. I was processing with him around about that visit that we made here we made two visits but one we didn't stay to preach because we had a grandson born we disappeared in the middle of the night but on that first visit i remember standing in pete's kitchen he 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 literally he demonstrated he said paul he said it's very simple if you have a headache i'll pray for you if it doesn't go i'll give you an aspirin it's simple but it's absolute truth you see the problem is we don't have this in our thinking then who we are in the world is a disempowered army. And it's time for a fully empowered army. I love it. It's an old story, but it's the old story of the, of the guy who buys an allotment, you know, proudly buys his allotment. And there he is on his first day with his allotment. It's completely full of weeds. The shed's falling down. The greenhouse has broken panes of glass in it. And there he is, his first day in his allotment, and, and his vicar walks past. Vicar walks past and says, wow. He says, I can't wait to see what you and God will do with this allotment. A few months go past and the same vicar walks past him and now the allotment's perfect. The greenhouse is repaired. The shed's perfect and row upon row of perfectly growing vegetables and flowers. And the vicar comes along and he says, my. He says, what an amazing job you and God have done together. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. You should have seen this place when God looked after it on his own. (laughs) We sometimes attribute kind of more to God than we should attribute to God, you know? If If you can forgive me for that. 
I, I love one of Bill Johnson's phrases when, you know, people, you know, Bill will give them a compliment and say, wow, you know, your singing was absolutely amazing. And, uh, and they'll turn around and say, it wasn't me, it was Jesus. And he'll say, no, it wasn't that good. <laughs> like we, 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 we have this weird thinking in our heads, don't we? You know, he made you in his image. I don't know whether you realize how amazing that is, how remarkable that is. I personally believe that God's glory is the result of God expressing himself. God expressed himself and, and this world happened. And you happened. God expressed himself. Creator God expressed himself and you happened. But then let's take it one step further. There was nothing on this earth once that was made by man. Nothing. But look at it now. Look at what God has, what man has done, what man has created, what man has developed. The incredible ingenuity is stunning, isn't it? God hid it for man to discover. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search it out. Look at what man has done. But if we don't value that, and here's what I believe has happened. I believe that we Christians have, have been, have fallen behind. In this, in this aspect. See, if I can just illustrate it this way. Let's say over here, and, and I don't want to judge them, but let's take two or three names of great men who've, who've, you know, are world famous. Let's take Bill Gates, Richard Branson. You can throw in. Anyone got a, a lady that I can throw in there? I realize my illustration is very sexist for a moment. Oprah Winfrey. Beautiful one. So here they are. Although she's a believer, so I'm not sure about that. I think you let me down there. I needed an, I needed an, anyway. We'll stop here. We'll just stop at these two. Well, I mean, yeah, now again, let's just stay with Bill Gates and Richard Branson, all right? Okay. All right. And ladies, just understand, I, I love you and I, I don't have that thing in me. So here they are over here and look what they've done. Look what they've done with their ability. And, and you know, truly the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of Bill Gates and Richard Branson. If I can put it that way. And they have a glory. I don't have time to prove that. But they have a glory. So here they are over here. But they don't know God. Now we have four times what they have over there. Because you and I are filled with the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. And we have Christ in us the hope of glory. And we're made in the image of God. They just have made in the image of God. Okay? But, but they've been running free. They've not been held back by a religious spirit. They've not been, they just run. They've just done what they've done and they've, nobody stopped them. But over here there's us and we've been, well, I'm not really sure whether that's quite as spiritual for me to be involved in that over there. And we've, and we've held back. And, and so we haven't celebrated being made in the image of God. Somehow we've thought that, that our Christian lives needed to be expressed by some kind of lots of mystical, supernatural stuff that goes on. And we missed the fact that we're made in the image of God. And we've been put on this planet to be doctors and nurses and teachers and, and musical, musicians and film directors, etc., etc., etc. And what we've done is we've allowed the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Bill Gates and Richard Branson and a few other people. Who have less than we have. But they never had a religious spirit to hold them back. They never realized that they were taking a risk. This is the generation. I believe that this is the generation. You see, my generation would be, ah, you know what? We can't really send you to Hollywood. Hollywood might pollute you. It might affect you. Let's not send you there. But this is the generation that says, let's send you to Hollywood. Because you're going to pollute Hollywood. 
You're going to take what you have and you're going to infect the environment. You see, we've created these divides and it's time for them to end. Let me give you two or three examples of of moments in my life that have shaped me on this subject. Uh, The first one, to be honest, I've known Isaiah 61 all my life, but somewhere I missed until I got to Bethel that it's the prisoner, the captive, and the brokenhearted who rebuild ruined cities. If you read the whole sequence, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. To preach the good news, bind up the brokenhearted, preach freedom to the prisoner, release to the captives, and declare the favorable year of the Lord, which incidentally means jubilee, which was what you started the service with. So it must be an Isaiah 61 year because it's the year of jubilee. And as somebody told me last week, actually, it's the year of the mega jubilee because it's 500, which is 10 times 50. So expect a mega jubilee this year. But I miss the fact that that passage, it's those broken people, those captives and those prisoners, they get released to rebuild ruined cities and raise up the former devastations. Not the anointed priest, but the ones who got set free. And I remember sitting listening to that and thinking, oh, that's a key, isn't it? That's an absolute key. I've been waiting for the priest to do this thing. The priests have the anointing to set everyone else free. Once we're set free, we're the ones who go out and do the stuff. We're the ones who go up and restore the ruined cities, raise up the former devastations. And when I'm saying we, I'm talking myself as prior to me being paid to go to church, which I do get paid to go to church these days. And I remember listening to that and thinking, that's a game changer. That is an absolute game changer. Not only that, but that passage goes on to say, instead of shame, a double portion. Here's the truth. If you believe that you're a second class Christian, if you believe that what you do for a living isn't as important as people who are paid to go to church, you are walking in shame because shame will tell you that you are less than you were created to be. And the Bible there in that passage says, instead of shame, a double portion. That's experience number one that changed me. Now, it was a little bit before, but I don't think I really, really understood the value of this until after I got the Isaiah 61 revelation. But in 1997, I was privileged to be in Argentina. I was at a guy called Claudio Friedson's church, one of the greatest revivalists alive today. I stood outside of his church, just finishing a trip there. We'd been there for eight days. And while I was there, I received a fax. It actually went to Claudio's private fax machine. For those of you who don't know, a fax is an ancient form of communication. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me and, what's the fax? He gave me this fax and then he said, Paul, what's it say? I'd been with him for eight days. He got to know me by name. I said, I've been promoted to uh, run a prison, Claudio. And he put his hands on my shoulders, looked me eyeball to eyeball. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Claudio and Randy Clark, they, I think they've got Jesus' eyes, personally. They just, like, pierce through you. And he looked me eyeball to eyeball, his hands on my shoulders, and he said, Paul, go back to England and run that prison for God. Amen. I put my call down that day, the one I got in 1975. I really, I put it down. It's still blowing around on the streets of Buenos Aires somewhere. I put it down and said, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, this is what I'll do. I'll run a prison for God. It's, I'm good with that. That's, that's a calling. I, I got it. And I embraced it and it changed me. Another moment for me which was related to what I said to you earlier about my prostate cancer surgery. Six weeks after my surgery I stood in Bethel Church on a Sunday night. 
I've been asked to preach. I didn't have any message to preach other than a journal I'd walked through for the last three months. I stood in Bethel Church, a church famous for people flying from all over the world to get healed. And I made a statement. My statement was simply this. Surgery is not a second class healing. You know that because you've got Pete leading you. What changed me was this though. I got a phone call later on. A phone call from a man who's performed 75 of those prostate surgeries a year. Saves life after life after life. He called me. He said, Paul, I've been a doctor for 30 plus years. My dad was a doctor. My whole life has been medicine. I've studied. I've got every qualification I can get in my field. But he said, I want to tell you something. The most valuable lesson I have ever learned in medicine came on Sunday night when you said surgery is not a second class healing. I'm like, what do you mean? He said, because up until I heard you say that, I felt that I was a little bit second class. I wasn't quite as valuable. I'd go to church and they'd share the great testimony and I'd miss the fact that day after day after day, I saved people's lives. I'll never forget that. Another moment that changed me on this is I teach on uh, administration. I teach on kingdom administration. I love teaching on it. I taught on it here a couple of days ago. I've, I've struggled at times with it. I've, tr- I've struggled with knowing that I'm an administrator and at times thought, come on, God, give me, could you give me a more exciting gift than that? You know, just something. <laughs> I was teaching a school of administration. It was about three years ago. I, I didn't know, even know these people were there. I was teaching on administration. I was, I was teaching a similar message to this about erasing the secular sacred. I was, I was saying, you know, the gift of administration is, is a gift we need today. It's a natural gift and a supernatural gift that we need it for such a time as this. About two weeks after that school, I received a letter that lady wrote and said, you know, I, I dragged my husband to your school. That happens, doesn't it, guys? Occasionally we get dragged somewhere and then God shows up. So I dragged my husband to your school. He was depressed. Our marriage was on the rocks. He couldn't sleep at night. Brought him to your school. He's an administrator. He sat in your school. He said, she said, you didn't pray for him. All you did was told him that his gift was a valuable gift. All you did was said that he didn't have a second class anointing or a second class calling. And she wrote to me and said, I took a different husband home who's not depressed. Our marriage is healed and he sleeps at night. That's not bad. And I could go on. Probably though my favorite. I found myself at Reinhard Bonnke's School of Evangelism. That's a whole other story. But that's how I found myself there. And it's part of my journey. It's part of why I'm now back in Europe. It's part of why I end up finding myself preaching in stadiums in Stockholm and Nuremberg and Prague later on this year. Because God changed my life. And I'll probably share something about it tonight. About how God changed my life with one prophetic word. As a result of that word, I'm in Reinhard Bonnke's school of evangelism. Wow, how did I get there? The first night, Suzette Hetting, his his intercessor, stood up. And she began to preach. And and she took us to Joel 2.17. And she said this. She said, there's much weeping between porch and altar. And I thought, where's she going to go with this? Because I... Honestly, I'm not, I'm not really an intercessor. You know, it's not me. I, you know, I, I, I pray. I, I like praying in, in public meetings and stuff like that. But I, I, you'd never put that tag on me. That's dangerous, though, because I used to say that about evangelism. But anyway. <laughs> 
And she started to say something. She said, you know, all of us have a priestly ministry. That's the altar. We go to the altar and we have a priestly ministry. But all of us have a porch ministry. And we turn around and we have a kingly ministry. And the porch is where we touch the world. And she stood stood there that night and she said, don't you dare separate the two. Don't tell me some of your priests and some of your kings. We're all priests and kings. I, I, I think that was my first ever crush on an intercessor. I honestly, I mean, I'm like, I love you. What you just said just set me free. You see, people divide. We create this, this division stuff. And it has to stop. You know, I believe that this is an apostolic move of God. An apostolic move of God in, in a nutshell means that you were sent to bring heaven to earth. Not Pete. Not the leaders, not Bill Johnson. We are all sent to bring heaven to earth. Every one of you in this house is apostolic, whether you realize it or not. But I'm about to make sure you know that you are apostolic. Now, I didn't say you're an apostle. I said you're apostolic. Because apostolic is a mindset derived from coming under the influence of an apostle. And whether you've worked out who your apostle on earth is doesn't matter. Jesus is the first apostle. So if you come on his influence, his teaching, you're apostolic. Which means you have an assignment to bring heaven to earth. Not heaven to the church, heaven to earth. You have an apostolic assignment. I didn't call you apostles. Make sure, don't, I I always check this. Don't go home and make a sign that says apostle, whatever. That's not the idea, all right? Even if it works like it does with me, Pete and I, we got it down. Apostle Pete, Apostle Paul. Our names really work. But not all of your names work, you know. And I'm not saying I am. My point is this. You're apostolic. You're apostolic. You have an apostolic assignment to bring heaven to earth. But it's really important that you realize no secular sacred divide. That every one of us is in ministry. The only issue is where you draw your paycheck. But there's been a battle going on for many of us. A battle that I will sum up out of Luke 15. A passage of the Bible that I have come to absolutely adore. I'd probably say Isaiah 9 and Luke 15. If, 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 if I only allowed two pages of the Bible on my desert island, I'll take those. Luke 15. You know the story, the boy, he runs off to the city, goes and has a fun time, sleeps with prostitutes, goes to all the parties. He must have had some fun. He had some money. He spent some money on fun, yeah? There he is. He he then comes to his right mind and he returns. I actually believe he realized what he wasn't, but that's a whole preach for another day. Here's the character in the story that I want to focus on today as we close. I want to focus on the elder brother because if we're being honest... There are other elder brothers in this room. God told me a a few years ago I'd been an elder brother. Now, in my honesty, my honesty was, it's really not fair, God. I didn't even get to waste the money in the city and have the party and sleep with the prostitutes and all that glamorous, fun living. Let's be honest. Some of us have thought that. And there I am, the elder brother, working in the fields, and the boy comes home. How does this relate to the modern day? I'm going to tell you, I think it relates like this. Some of us have been out there working in the fields, working in offices and factories and schools, legal offices, you name it, working hard. 
And then, you know, some kid comes along who's messed up their life, has a dramatic salvation, jumps up here with a microphone, starts preaching, and you see God show up. And then those of us that are out there working and going, God, this is just not fair. I've been working hard all these years. I didn't even get to go to the party. And I, neither did I not get to know to the party. And no one's ever thrown me a party back here at home. And it's not fair that this tattooed up kid comes back and everyone's celebrating him and calling him a revivalist. He's got tattoos down both arms. He's got ear piercings you can drive a small car through. <laughs> it's plain unfair. And here I am out in the field working hard all these years. See, I think a lot of the 97% who don't get paid to church feel like the older brother. They're comparing themselves with someone else. They're comparing their anointing with someone else. They're comparing their present with a future. And they're out there working in the field. God told me, I, I know when he told me. September the 27th, 2012, he told me, he said, Paul, you've been an elder brother. I'm like, come on, God, that's not fair. So, well, you've been an elder brother. And I began to realize how true that was. I began to realize that, yeah, I had. I viewed myself. I'm the hardworking, responsible one. I'm the one who shows up for everything. I've worked hard all my life. And yes, I have. I've looked at those youngsters that show up, that have messed up their lives, and all of a sudden are given this title of being a revivalist, and I'm comparing myself. And I'm thinking, what have I done with my life? And I've been out here working in the field, and it's just not worked out fair for me. And he began to talk to me began to show me that there's, that's really the manifestation of this secular sacred divide. There's the one who's working hard in the field and there's the one who seems to have all the attention in the church. But you know what's beautiful about that story? What's beautiful about that story is the father. The father broke the rules for the, the young boy. He broke the rules twice for the young boy. He broke them in the first place by giving him the money. And he broke them the second time by pulling up his robe, a middle-aged, Middle Eastern man, and he ran. He broke the rules for the boy. But you know, he broke the rules for the elder brother. Because he left the table. He left where the guests were at the meal table. And he left that table and he went out into the field for the elder brother. He broke the rules for the elder brother. Some of you in here need to know that the Father breaks the rules for you. He wants to come to your place of work. He wants to come out and run out to your place of work and tell you something. He wants to stop you comparing yourself with someone else. He wants to stop you thinking, when I'm in ministry, when this happens, and He wants you to fully embrace who you are today, what you're doing, who you are, and what you came here for. He wants you to embrace that right here, right now, today. And He does it in the most profound way. And I believe He does it in one of the most life-changing verses in the Bible. When the Father comes out and says to the elder brother, Hey, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. You see, we're thinking, God's not with me. Because I'm not as spiritual. God's not with me. What I do isn't as valuable. God's not with me because I don't show up and see all these amazing things happen. And the Father wants to tell you, I've always been with you. But not only that, everything, everything I have is yours. Everything. Everything. It's what He wants to say. See, I, I really do believe it's time for a fully empowered army. And that means from the butcher to the bank manager, to the film writer, 
to the school teacher, to the nurse, to the doctor, to the lawyer. Every one of us. Every one of us needs to be fully enlisted in God's army. No exceptions. No one left out. You know, the third person I could have mentioned, but I didn't mention him, was Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs of Apple fame. He wrote something. It's celebrated as a great speech. I've seen it on office walls. It's kind of good. It's the crazy one speech. Goes on, goes through the whole list. The crazy ones, they get things done. I don't think that's true. Now, because it implies that they do it on their own. They don't. They don't do it on their own. This church isn't here because of crazy ones. This church wasn't built by crazy ones. When you had to set up and tear down, it wasn't, it wasn't the crazy ones that did the set up and tear down. I guarantee it was people who were working 50, 60, 70 hours a week. You see, we, we, we need each other. The revivalists need, my language, the reformers. The reformers are the ones who are more likely out there working in the law offices, establishing new standards of society under the principles of the king, but they felt less valuable. Well, I have news for you. Your time has come. It's your time. It's time for a fully empowered army to rise up. It's time for a fully empowered army to hear the Father say, when you sit looking at your computer screen on Wednesday morning and you have this moment where you think, oh, maybe I'll be in ministry one day. Maybe I'll do this one day. Maybe I'll do that one day. The Father wants to come and whisper in your ear and say, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. And I want to just as we close, and I'm, I'm very happy to minister later, but I wanted to close before some of you went out to get your children because I know that you know, you pick up your kids and you get caught up. I, I really do believe from the mum that, that's at home raising the kids to the local member of parliament and anyone else in between, we need to hear this. We need to stop comparing ourselves with other people. We, still, we need to stop waiting for some fictitious, imaginary moment of perfect destiny to arrive. And we need to stand in this moment, whatever it is we do, and hear the Father say, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. So I want to invite you to stand. And I want, I want us just to embrace this. I want us to grab hold of this. Whatever it is you do. Wherever it is you work. Whatever group of people it is you touch. I want you to know something. It's time. It's your time. It's time for you to be fully enlisted. To be a part. A fully paid up member. Of the army of ordinary people who will march across this land and march across this continent. And will see revival, reformation and I believe a new renaissance. But it requires that you embrace who you are. It requires that you embrace what you do. And it requires that you turn your ear to the Father and you hear him whisper. Everything I have is yours. I've always been with you. Always. Father I just pray right now that you would release this. To life after life in this room. Release it. Release the truth of it. Release the power of it. Some of you need to be set free right now. To be set free of believing that lie. That you're a second class Christian. That your life hasn't amounted to much. You need to be set free from that. And fully embrace who you are right here. Right now. Who you are. What you do. What you came here for. What you were sent to this planet for. Father I pray for a restoration right now. Of life after life. And I thank you. I thank you for those that built the foundation of this house. For those that built a platform that others could stand upon. 
Those that did for year after year set up and tear down buildings. Those that year after year were willing to labor and to work. Those that poured of their hard-earned income into building this building. Those that have labored year after year after year. Some of them in jobs that they felt were mundane. Father, I thank you that they did that. And that they have invested and that they have built a foundation for a great and mighty work of God. Father, I thank you for every one of them. Father, today I'm asking that they would hear, specifically they would hear your words. I've always been with you. Everything I have is yours. Thank you, Father. Release an army of ordinary people who will march and demonstrate the power of God in every room, in every corridor, in every office, in every street, in every shop, in every schoolroom, in every hospital room, in every theater, every restaurant, every home. That they would demonstrate your glory in everything they do and say. And we will give you all honor and all praise. The Father whispers to you today, I've always been with you. And everything I have is yours. Amen.